Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This is the Sunday before Christmas, and so you won't be surprised to know that we're going to study the Christmas story, but this time not the normal one. We're going to go to Joseph and learn about Joseph and how he was brought into the account of Jesus Christ and specifically his relationship with Mary. It's something that seems so obvious that you don't need to say it, but it does need to be said that um, Jesus was considered to be, and probably still is today considered by many, to be an illegitimate child. And uh, this is how it would have looked to Joseph himself, but we find that God spoke to Joseph very specifically and reassured him and this is the text that we're going to read this morning Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 this is the word of God and it is eternally true now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit and Joseph her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this account of your angel revealing to Joseph the origin of this child. We thank you, Father, that you deign to give us the name Father and that you are the Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And we pray this morning that our hearts will be soft before you and that as you speak to us through your Holy Spirit that you will Forgive me for my sin and use my faulting lips, my halting lips, my sinful heart that you will work through your Holy Spirit in the sinful hearts of all of us that this Jesus may save us from our sins and may bring us to be used by him as an instrument of reconciliation in this wicked world in which we live. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very sweet to look at the fact that God, in his kindness, provides a father for his son. We kind of cringe at the idea of referring to Joseph as Jesus' father. But in fact, that's what he was. And although the pregnancy that resulted in his birth was by the Holy Spirit, God did provide a man who was a um, loving husband to Mary, the mother of Jesus, a man who also was a father to Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this father that God provided for his son. His name was Joseph, and he was a descendant of King David. The stories in the Gospels are very clear to point this out, what his descent was, because the Messiah was to be a descendant of David. The only records of Joseph in the Bible are in the accounts of Jesus' birth and of when he was a little boy. And so many people believe that he had died by the time Jesus' public ministry had had come, and that's why we see no indication of him at that time. Now, Joseph was poor. And he earned his living as a carpenter. In fact, we read in Mark 6, 3 that Jesus also was a carpenter before he began preaching. We read, there is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, 
and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. It's interesting to live in a university community and to see what kind of carpenters we have, right? If you're a carpenter in Bloomington, you say you you don't view yourself as having much of a calling. And so typically, um, if you work with wood in Bloomington, you want to say that you're something other than a carpenter, right? And so if you ask Andrew Henry, he'll quickly tell you that he's not a carpenter. And the way he tells you this is he says that he makes custom furniture. You're welcome. It's been a hard day for you. I'm sorry, but I love you. <laughs> well, I do the same thing. You know, I'd say I'm a cabinet maker, I'm, I'm, but I'm certainly not a framer, right? And certainly not a sheet rocker. Nobody wants to be a sheet rocker, right? No one. Glenn Lindert in my last church was a sheet rocker. He was an anomaly in the sheet rocker world. So... What we do is we try to raise carpenters up to a level where they, they're, they're artisans, you know, they're craftsmen, they're cabinet makers. Last week we had a man here visiting for the sing-along. His name was Paul Faree. Well, if any of you know anything about people who are wealthy in this community, you know that the Faree brothers make the best cabinets in Bloomington. So if it's a custom home, it'll say, you know, kitchen by Faree. Right. And this is his. These are his nephews. Paul is a dear, dear brother in Christ. Well, Joseph was not a cabinet maker and he was not um, a custom furniture maker. He was a carpenter and he was a poor one. Now, how do we know that he was poor? Well, at the end of 40 days, all Jewish fathers were to take their firstborn sons up to the temple and they were to make an offering. And the offering was to be what? It was to be a turtle dove and a lamb, unless they were very poor. And then they were allowed to bring two turtle doves. So when Joseph went up to the temple, he took two turtle doves. That's how poor he was. He was a descendant of King David. He was a carpenter, and he was poor. Now, what else do we know about him? Well, we know that he was betrothed to Mary. Now, what was betrothal? Betrothal was very different from what most people think of as engagement today or what they refer to as engagement, although I don't know whatever has happened to engagement now that I think of it. I think engagement for most people today is when you live together for seven years before you tie the knot. And um, so you really have to rejigger your brain to get back to what they did at that time. What they did was they had a period almost always of a year. It was called betrothal. And during that time, you were husband and wife. You would call each other husband and wife. If your husband or your wife died, you would be a widower or a widower. If they were unfaithful, you would divorce them. It wouldn't just, you know, melt away. You had to actually divorce them, even though you were only betrothed. At the end of the year, what happened at the beginning of the year is that there would be this complex negotiation between the two family units. It was never just a question of one person and one person and we'll get married. It was families coming together. It's one of the stupidities of a romantic society where we think we can escape our families of origin and just sort of fall in love and and fall out of love. And so before marriage, we think, well, you know, it's you I love. I can live with your family. And then we learn after marriage what it is to live with their family. And then afterwards, when we decide we want to be done with them, we say, well, I'll just divorce you. And then we learn what it is to live with them the rest of your life. In many ways, it's worse than when you were married. There's more conflict. There's more tension after a divorce. You you, you never get rid of the person you divorce, especially if you have children. And so today we think we're individualists. We think that we're making our own agreements and getting married and then divorcing and everything. But it's family units coming together. And back then they were very careful about how that happened. It took a year. You'd negotiate carefully between the families at the beginning. But the woman would live with her father under his authority for that coming year. Then at the end of the year, he transferred from the authority of her father. She would transfer to the authority of her husband. All right. 
And the way that it, that transfer happened, and you see this in Scripture with some of the parables, is that she would then leave her father's house, big ritual, and she would then move in with her husband, and they would consummate the marriage at that point. They were not to have sex prior to that point, only when she actually transferred. So you see, it's a very careful process. Now, in the middle of that process, all of a sudden, Joseph looks at Mary, and you know she's not going around saying, well, I have morning sickness again today. In other words, she's probably being very modest and discreet in hiding her pregnancy. It was nothing to brag about. Even if it had been by Joseph, it was nothing to brag about because it was a moral failure. And all of a sudden, Joseph, despite what Mary did to be discreet, Joseph realizes she's pregnant. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He loved Mary. How do we know he loved Mary? Well, it's obvious from this text, but it's also obvious from the fact that he accompanied her when he went up to Bethlehem. Or rather, I should say that he brought her along. She was then at the point of delivery. She was nine months And he knew that she was close to giving birth, and probably the majority of men at the time would have made that trip, you know, as a business trip. I have to go up to Bethlehem and register. I'll be back in a couple of days. But Joseph didn't do that. He took Mary with him. Why did he take Mary? Most likely because he loved her, and he wanted to be with her when she gave birth because he loved her. And so Joseph loved this woman. He had a deep love for her, this woman that he had taken to be his wife. And so the knowledge of her pregnancy would not have been anything happy for him. It would have caused him an awful lot of pain and an awful lot of anguish. He probably would have felt great jealousy. After all, it would have been some other man. He knew it wasn't him. They hadn't been intimate. So some other man had inserted himself between Joseph and his wife. And we read that, verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, at that point, we need to ask ourselves the questions. What, what, the question, what does it mean when it says he's a righteous man? It's obviously connecting his righteousness with something going on right there. So what is it? What is his righteousness? It says, being a righteous man, this man Joseph, not wanting to disgrace her, plan to send her away secretly. And so we see that the options are three. It could be that he didn't want to disgrace her. It could be that he planned to send her away secretly. Or it could be a combination of both not wanting to disgrace her, but planning to send her away. In other words, whether or not uh, Joseph's righteousness... What did it consist of? Did it consist of his decision that he would not continue to be betrothed to her but would divorce her? Or did it consist in the method of his divorce? Now, sexual faithfulness and purity were expected within betrothal. In Hosea 2, we read in this book of the account of God relating to his people as a bridegroom to his bride. We read God saying to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. So God is the bridegroom. We are the bride. God says he will betroth himself to us, and then he lists the things forever, Righteousness, injustice, loving kindness, in compassion, and in faithfulness. So God is faithful to his bride, and he expects us to be faithful to him. Now, what happens when God is faithful to his bride, and when his bride is faithful to him? Well, we read that it says... Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens. So come on, guys. Do you all feel the vibes of what's going on here? It's a relationship of love and tenderness and unity and faithfulness. And what happens? You have to to pull yourself out of the green revolution to get this. You know, you can't be thinking environmentalism and get this, because environmentalism wants everybody to stop propagating. 
The whole goal of environmentalism is to, like, go in the corner and cover your head. All right? Or just off yourself if you're a human being. All right? Well, what happens when the people of God give themselves to God and God gives himself to his people? What happens when the bride of Christ gives herself to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and he gives himself to his bride? What happens when the relationship of the people of God to God is as a bride to the bridegroom in faithfulness and love is this. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. Come on, guys. You know, this is the Bible, and it's about as sexual as you can get. God will sow us. In the land, I will have compassion on who who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. In other words, it's fruitfulness, right? I mean, it's just as obvious as obvious can be. This is sex. The love gives birth. The love of God for his people and the love of his people for God gives birth. It's fruitful. The land, the grain, the calves, the babies, and what? In the church, what? Missional. Evangelistic. In other words, where you have a church that is not growing by people believing in Jesus Christ, the relationship of the bride to the bridegroom is dead or non-existent. You can't possibly love Jesus without being fruitful. And fruitfulness is not apples and cherries and, and eggs and stuff like that. For the church, fruitfulness, I mean, yeah, we can make a big show of it. we got 220 acres here. Let's go plant fruit trees. Wouldn't that be great? Then we'd be fulfilling God's calling for us. <laughs> it's so interesting. We go out and we plant corn and soybeans through our agent, right? And the land bears fruit. But what about the people of God? Well, Now you look at this relationship of the betrothed to each other, the husband to the wife, the wife to the husband. It bears fruit. But in this particular case, the love is there. The the faithfulness is there. Everything is there that God has made a picture of the relationship that he has with his people. But the fruit is what? The fruit here is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not the fruit of Joseph. And so, again, this, this is a very, very large difficulty for Joseph. Because God has made us to desire and to have hearts that desire exclusivity. And so Joseph has this situation that he loves her, that she loves him, that the betrothal has been agreed on by both families, that they're coming to the end of the period, and all of a sudden the woman he loves is pregnant. And the Bible tells us what? The Bible tells us that Joseph had a mind to put her away, but to do it quietly. In Deuteronomy 22, we read this. This is speaking about uh, betrothal. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. You know, text that every church preaches on once a year, right? (laughs) Now, does everybody know why it is that it's in the city and out in the country? The reason is that it's understood in the country that the woman might have cried out and nobody would have heard her. But in the city, there's no way she cried out and people didn't hear her. So it's assumed in the city that she was fully willing to be immoral with the man. So they both bear the penalty. In the country, it's assumed that she's innocent because she couldn't have been heard if she had cried out. Now, what's the point of this? Well, the point is that it says in the middle of this text, giving these stipulations, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, As we get to the end of our time of studying Scripture today, I'm going to be making the case that 
the whole Western world is one huge conspiracy against the character of God, the holiness of God, and the depravity of man. In fact, I think much of the debate about what laws should and shouldn't be today is an effort on the part of man to destroy the character of God and to deny his guilt before God. All right? That's what the law serves to do today, is to legitimate the wickedness and rebellion of man. All right? Now, that's not a political statement. It's just an observation by somebody who reads Scripture. And so we go back to this text and we look at the middle of it and it says, Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. And the minute we look at Joseph and we see Joseph saying that he's going to divorce Mary, what do we do? Well, I think most of us, if we're honest, we think to ourselves, well, that's not very righteous. He should be magnanimous. If he really loved her, he wouldn't let a little thing like that come between them. I mean, isn't that America today? People, be honest. Isn't that America today? You know, it's kind of an exotic species today to have some couple come asking to be married in the church and to have them processing the question of whether they're both virgins. Recently, the um, recently uh, the pastoral leaders of this church have been involved in dealing with a very serious sexual sin. And in the process of dealing with this sin, we've been dealing with uh, a man who used to be a prosecutor, all right, a Christian. And this sexual sin is as predatory as they get. Yeah, it's not two people who are both 70 and want to save their Social Security moving in together without benefit of marriage this time. This makes the Catholic Church look tame. And in going through this and getting counsel from this Christian man who used to be a prosecutor, it's very interesting to talk to him and for him to just say point blank, well, these things are always covered up always covered up. They just couldn't fathom the fact that we would be dealing with this by taking it to the law. This is, this is, a, this is a class A felony we're talking about. And what is true of the church in America today? Very briefly, he said churches would always cover this up. Now, if that's what the Church of Jesus Christ does, what does the world do? And how have we gotten to the point where we think in the church these things should be covered up? Well, you know why, don't you? Because the church, more than anything else, wants to protect her money. And what does that have to do with this? Well... Anytime you get involved with Class A felonies, you'll expose yourself to litigation. And what does the word litigation mean? <laughs> uh, Brian, would you like to tell us what the word litigation means? And what kind of pain and suffering? Emotional pain and suffering time and what did you say? Money. It's money. Now let's go back to Joseph and Mary. Joseph was a righteous man. So what do you think in this story is tied to his righteousness? And what we all have a tendency to want to say is it's the fact that he wanted to divorce her quietly. Wasn't he a godly man? But I think what we need to realize is that the first indication of Joseph's godliness is the thing we don't want to say was godly. And what is it? He had a mind to divorce her. In other words, it was godliness that Joseph intended to divorce the woman that he loved. You know, today, adultery is everywhere. 
It's absolutely everywhere in the church, let alone the world. My former church, one Sunday, I said one of the largest problems, and I think I actually said the largest issue that pastors deal with today is adultery. And there was a woman in that church, and she was horrified. So she called the elders together and then had me come in and called me on the carpet. And interestingly, what she said was what? She said, you lied. (laughs) I lied. I mean, you know, you could say you're an idiot. You could say you shouldn't say that publicly. But I didn't lie. Why would I lie? I want to lie this morning. What lie will I tell? Well, I think from the pulpit I'll lie about what a big problem is that we have to deal with. I mean, what's the motivation? It's lunatics. So one of the elders there who really disliked me and didn't want me to be the pastor nevertheless looked at her and said, well, actually, what he said is true. (laughs) Well, then, what do you think she said? She said, well, I don't care if it is true. You shouldn't say it from the pulpit. Very interesting today to think of how adultery permeates the church, but it should not be mentioned. Don't mention it. Joseph, being a righteous man, had it in his mind what? To divorce her. To divorce her. You know what happens when the church refuses to turn in felons to the law? Do you know what happens when adulterers, and this happens all the time in America, in evangelical Bible-believing churches, men who decide that they want younger flesh will go out and leave their wife and leave their children and show up the next Sunday in the pew with their new wife and sit near their ex-wife and her children. And the church will be silent. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that account from people in other churches. What happens in situations where Joseph, being a righteous man, overlooks her sin? What happens? It's what America is today. Divorce and adultery and child molestation, they permeate the world. They're everywhere. If you could preach to this congregation every fall when the students come, the students aren't here today because they've all gone home. But if you could sit here and you could look at each fresh class of grad students and undergrads who come in here, through my eyes, do you know what you would see? What you would see is women who have been sexually abused as children. Do you know how I know it? Because they cannot meet the eyes of a man. They may give you their eyes for a second, but they'll never meet your eyes. And there are other ways of knowing it. Joseph, being a righteous man, decided to put her away quietly. No, Joseph, being a righteous man, decided to put her away. Was it because he didn't love Mary? No. Do you think Joseph could have overlooked that? I don't have any question he could have. But Joseph understood that our conduct in situations like this is not disconnected from our neighbor and from our brother and from our sister and from our parents and from our nation. And Joseph was committed to being righteous. I don't have any question that the Bible was indicating that central to Joseph's righteousness was his commitment to not let evil permeate his home, his family, his community, and his nation. And to testify, what? To the faithfulness of God to his bride, the church. And of the church to her bridegroom. Now, that's not all it says. It also says what? It says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And so this is the other half of it, that he didn't want to disgrace her and he planned to send her away secretly. At that time, Joseph had two basic options. Number one, he could sue her for divorce. It would be perfectly proper, and there was no fear of her being executed, since the practice of executing adulterers had ceased some time before. 
but it would cause her and her family great public humiliation. Number two, he could put her away quietly. This would accomplish their separation without needlessly subjecting Mary to such public dishonor and disgrace. And being a gentle or tender-hearted man, Joseph chose the second way. In Deuteronomy 24.1, Moses speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So this was the provision for divorce in the Old Testament. Joseph would have found something indecent in her, and he put her away quietly. He doesn't know who it was that caused her to become pregnant. And so he knew he had to divorce her, but he chose to do it without shaming her. It's very beautiful to look here and see how God sees the smallest details of our inner lives and comes to us right in our hour and need because God knew the pain and the turmoil of Joseph. He knew that Joseph did not want to divorce her because he loved her. I'm certain that Joseph had been praying, had been sleepless at night, had been asking God for direction, but you don't need to ask God for direction when Scripture is clear, do you? Right? And Scripture was clear. He was to divorce her. He could not approve of the adultery. After the first service, a young woman came up to me and said that she had always thought of Joseph's righteousness being the fact that he went ahead and kept Mary and, 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 and was the father to her child. And I said, but the text says, and she said, I know, I'm just telling you, that's the way I thought of it until now, right? Listen to what Calvin says about this and ask yourself whether any commentator from Trinity Seminary or from Fuller or from Gordon-Conwell or from Southern Baptist would write this today. Calvin says about this, as he suspected his wife of adultery, indeed was persuaded of it, he did not wish to foster such a crime by leniency. To connive at a wife's misbehavior makes a man into a procurer. To connive at a wife's indecency makes a man into a procurer. Now, what is a procurer today? Well, a pimp. A pimp without the bling. A white pimp. Right? In other words, a man that lives off of the immorality of his wife. Calvin goes on, not only do decent and honest minds abhor such a crime, but the law also treats this supine attitude, as I call it, as scandalous. Now, we don't know what the word supine means, do we? Um, Today we use the word recline. We sit in a recliner. A big comfy chair and the back goes back and the legs go up. That's when you're in a big comfy chair with the back back and the legs up, you're supine. Right? All right? So Joseph in his zeal for righteousness condemned what he took to be a crime in his wife. At the same time, his mind was disposed to humanity and restrained him from applying the full rigor of the law. The middle course, the more reasonable, was for her secretly to leave him for another. And then listen to this statement. We must understand that he was not of such soft and womanish material as to shelter a crime under his wing on the pretext of compassion. Any clue which statement of Calvin might not be made today by commentators on Scripture? (laughs) Come on, guys, you're supposed to be laughing. Let me read it again in case you missed it the first time. We must understand that Joseph was not of such soft and womanish material 
as to shelter a crime under his wing on the pretext of compassion. They got our number. That's the whole Western world today. Soft and womanly, hiding evil. Now, do mothers hide evil? Well, I can look at some of you, and I know you won't hide evil. I don't think Hannah's going to hide evil. We haven't seen yet. You never know. I don't think Joyce probably has ever hidden evil. I imagine Rita Cuffey did. It's a pitiful day we live in when we can't make generalizations without being tried by the court for thought crimes. As if it's a thought crime to generalize about the sexes. God gave us women to cover up sin. God gave us men to expose it. And as you have a husband and a wife working together, as God made the man and woman, you have the black soil that little children grow up in healthy and disciplined. And the wife is intended to discipline the husband that is, uh, what's the word in Ephesians? Don't exasperate. Thank you. God made women to discipline their husbands when they exasperate their children. And God made husbands to discipline their wives when they're soft and womanly. Can we say that today or am I now guilty of a thought crime? And so here Joseph is, and he's committed to do two things. He's committed on the one hand to judge the crime. He's committed on the other hand to judge it in a tender and compassionate way. Right? And it's beautiful. And so here he is, and his heart is broken because he loves Mary. But he has to do this, but he'll do it in this way. And all of a sudden, what happens at that point? Well, something that in the reform world never happens. Right? What happens then? Something in the reform world never, ever, ever happens. God gives him a revelation that's extra scriptural. (laughs) But that never happens today. Never, ever, ever will happen. God only speaks through the Bible. We all know that. And yet, how many of you, don't raise your hands because I don't want you to be tried for heresy, but how many of you have had a dream where God has spoken to you through the dream? And I will raise my hand and tell you multiple times it's happened to me where the Holy Spirit made something very clear to me in a dream. All right? And so how does God deal tenderly with Joseph? Here's what he does. You see it there, don't you? What the Bible tells us in verse 20, after he had considered these things and come to his decision, the Bible says an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. But you know something? That's the New International Version, and they don't get it right. Because what they say is, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. In the NASB it says, but when he had considered this, behold! And the words eviscerated from the NIV. It's not there. But the word is something like us saying, lo and behold, or take a look, or guess what, or you know what happened? An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe that it's important for us to stop here and for us to recognize that God does speak to us in dreams. And I want to read you Calvin on this. I'm pulling in the heavy hit here so that if I'm tried on heresy, I at least am standing on somebody else agreeing with me who's smart. And biblical, except at this point. Calvin says this. um, Excuse me a second, I didn't mark it. We must understand that dreams of this kind differ greatly from natural dreams. They are stamped with a character of certainty and are under divine seal so as to make their truth unambiguous. 
The dreams that normally come to men proceed perhaps from their daytime thoughts, perhaps from their natural constitution, perhaps from diseases of the body or such like. But with divine dreams, there is added the accompanying witness of the Spirit, giving firm assurance that it is God who speaks. <laughs> that creates a dilemma for people who want to say their only authority is Scripture, right? Now, can I please go on and point out to you that what the Holy Spirit told Joseph to do, are you ready for this, is contrary to Scripture. We don't like to think that way. Because we want to say that the voice of God never contradicts the voice of God. Joseph, being a righteous man, right? Being a righteous man had decided to divorce her. That was the right thing to do in this situation. But the Holy Spirit comes and tells Joseph not to divorce her. Now you say, well, yeah, but it's not contradictory to Scripture because, in fact, the Holy Spirit revealed to him that it was by the Holy Spirit that she was pregnant. And I say, you know, hindsight is always real good. But here he is, and it's a dream, and the dream an angel tells him, that he is to go ahead and marry her because what's in her is by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I want to make it very clear to you that God does use dreams. And I don't believe it's accurate to say that in the Old Testament and in the early church time that God would use dreams, but he's done using dreams today. And I don't believe that that's what Calvin says. I don't think you can make Calvin saying that as he deals with what dreams are given to us and how we know that they're sure and that they're from the Holy Spirit. So here he is, he's having a dream, and I think this teaches us to not to go out and to take peyote so we can have dreams, right? Or acid or dope or fast for three days. We're not supposed to go seeking extra biblical revelation. But when God speaks at night, when we're asleep, we should respond how? Speak. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Do you remember Samuel? Remember that? Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Another thing I think is really interesting is the fact that um, that God speaks to him in a dream, but speaks to him in a dream through an angel. Isn't that interesting? Once you're speaking to somebody through a dream, why do you need an angel? And was the angel a, a figment of imagination? No, it wasn't. He wasn't. So what was, why the angel? I don't know. That's just the question I'm asking. So, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Don't be afraid. And from these words of reassurance from the angel, it seems clear Joseph was dreading his next step. He didn't want to lose Mary. And now the angel tells him, The whole situation has changed. This child is a child of the Holy Spirit. And so he is able to go ahead and take Mary as his wife and to be a father to her child. Now, why do we call Joseph Jesus' father? Well, you remember when they go up to Jerusalem to the temple and they meet Simeon? At the end of that account, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 33, and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. In other words, the Holy Spirit himself calls Joseph Jesus' father. Augustine says, neither must Joseph be denied the title of father because he had not forgotten him begotten him carnally, seeing that he could be truly father to one not begotten by his own spouse, but adopted from elsewhere. And Origen says the Holy Spirit honored him with the title of father because he nurtured the Savior. So Joseph quietly provided for the mother and her baby's needs, and he stuck by them both. And it would have been very, very difficult. Now, we don't know much more about Joseph other than that he had an angel appear to him two more times. Do you remember when they were? One was go down to Egypt because they're going to try to kill Jesus. And the other is when he's in Egypt, come on back because the danger is past. And then we have one other time that Joseph shows up in the life of Jesus. Only one. 
Anybody want to guess when it was? You remember? Ben, do you remember? One other time. Yeah, you remember. How about you, Paul Wookie? Curtis, you remember? Yes. Right on. It's when they go up to the temple at Passover time. And then when they leave, Jesus hangs back and he's like talking about Scripture to the rabbis. And so his parents (laughs) are furious. They go back and they find him there. What, what did you mean by this? You know, they were far away from Jerusalem. You know, they, they were halfway home before they realized that this punk son of theirs was back in Jerusalem, hadn't bothered sticking with the family. Now, if that isn't a sin, I don't know what is. <laughs> but, of course, it isn't a sin. Jesus, remember, rebukes them for rebuking him. And he says what? Do you remember? He says, did you not know? Go ahead, Esther. Yes. Did you not know that I need to be in my father's house? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's it. That's Joseph. Now, I want to end by looking at what the angel says concerning this child to Joseph. In verse 21, she, meaning Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is the Latin word which took over from the Greek word, which took over from the Hebrew word, Joshua. All right. And the word Joshua means Jehovah will save or Jehovah is salvation. Now, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions about this salvation that is bound up in the name or this salvation by which Jesus gets his name. First, who does the angel say will be saved? Remember what Alan Bloom says in the closing of the American Mind? He says the only value left in America today is getting along with each other. That's it. That's the only law, the only truth, the only absolute we have any commitment left to in America today, right? Now, let me ask again. Who does the angel say will be saved? Verse 21, for he will save the people from their sins. Is that what it says? Or he will save people. He will save people from their sins. Is that what it says? What it says is he will save his people from their sins. In other words, right at the beginning of the story of Jesus is a statement of exclusivity. He will not just save anyone, but he will save his people. Now, I have a problem with this, and if I have a problem with this, probably most of you have a problem with this, too. Here's my problem with this. When I was young, and even more foolish than I am now, although that's hard to believe, I used to hitchhike from Bartlett to Elgin and from Elgin to Wheaton and from Wheaton to Bartlett. Because my school was in Elgin, my work and church were in Wheaton, Wheaton and Elgin were 22 miles apart. So I'd hitchhike. Summer I'd hitchhike from my morning job in Elgin to my afternoon job in Wheaton and then back home to Bartlett. During the school year I'd hitchhike in the same way. Spent a lot of time on the road. Now this is the late 60s. And in the late 60s, We were a generation that really knew old people were stupid and that we were going to bring in utopia, right? Some of you were alive during the 60s. Anybody? Caleb? Janet? You remember how? Yeah, you remember how we were going to do it right and our parents were fools and idiots and stupid? And so one of the things that was true about that time was that sex was free. Nobody would ever judge anybody for being immoral sexually. And another was that everybody smoked dope unless they were in the army and then they smoked it anyhow. And the third thing was that we were the generation of peace. And so when you would hitchhike, you'd put the thumb out, right? But the other thing you'd do is if you saw the silhouette, 
you would often know by the car and the silhouette that it was a freak that was coming. In other words, a long hair, a hippie. And if you knew it was a hippie that was coming, you didn't just put your thumb out. You know what you did? You go, hey, dude. Peace, dude. Peace. Peace, dude. He'd stop and you'd get in the car and you'd smoke dope. Because generally people like that were always stoned and they'd just give you dope to smoke. And so then you'd say what? What would you say to them? You'd say, hey, bro, or hey, brother. And so it was like, it was like peace, dope, free sex, and brother. What made you a brother with him? Well, dope. Because, of course, you wouldn't recognize hostility if it hit you in the face when you were stoned. <laughs> okay? And the fact that you could have his woman and he could have yours, it's cool. You know? And the fact that you were all against the war. And so you were brothers. It's very easy to be brothers with everybody when you're thousands of miles from the Viet Cong, right? The Ho Chi Minh Trail. So now here I am. I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. And I get my car worked on by a man who's not a believer. And he's very good to me, kind, explains the situation, generous, benevolent, maybe cuts me some slack in the price. And what do I do? Thanks, brother. The old hippie comes out. But when I say brother now to somebody who isn't a believer, immediately my conscience assaults me. And I think, don't you prostitute that name to somebody who does not belong to Jesus Christ. And then I think to myself, oh, but he ought to belong to Jesus Christ. And I think to myself, but he makes no pretense. He doesn't belong to Jesus. And then I think to myself, but if God was as benevolent and open-minded and loving as I am, then he would belong to Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we trade on the language of Scripture and the concepts of Scripture to include those that are not God's people, we claim to be more loving than God, to have more compassion than God. We claim that God is evil. Do you understand that? And that's rife in the church, that we judge the goodness of God based on his exclusivity. You look in your heart and ask yourself whether you really believe that your loved ones and your neighbors are in the condition that the Bible reveals them to be in. Do you understand what I'm asking you? Your neighbors and your loved ones, do you acknowledge that those that are not God's people are under the wrath of God eternally? And so the way we handle this is we come up with all these ways of using language and relating to people that cover up the essential truth that there's a chasm fixed between God's covenant people and the Canaanites. All right? And that chasm was constantly illuminated in every way by the Israelites in the Old Testament. By the way they ate, by what they did to their foreskins of their sons, by how they worshipped, by what was prohibited to them, by who they could marry, on and on and on and on. And today, what does the church do? Well, today the church is a whore. And so the church tries to obliterate all distinctions. And I'm walking around going, hey, brother. And I think I'm better than God. I don't like the fact that God has chosen me. Because I feel like, why should he choose me, right? I mean, it's nauseating to me to think of God choosing me. I look at some people who make no pretense of following God. Not, no pretense of being Christians, following Jesus Christ. No pretense of faith whatsoever. And I look at their character, and I think God owes it to them to save them. But the Bible says that Jesus 
was going to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. And that means that if you're here this morning and you have faith in Jesus Christ, the only reason you're here is because God has set his affection on you and called you to himself. That's it. It's nothing you've done. You did not choose him. He chose you. And if you think this is an aspect of Scripture's teaching that you can just sort of go into la-la land about, what I ask you to do is look deep inside yourself at your motivation for going into la-la land about this. And what you will find is that you accuse God of evil because he has not chosen the whole world. And you sing joy to the world with gusto. And with that song, you're confessing something that never, ever is confessed scripturally when it talks about God so loved the world, which is that it's every individual person and it's just up to the individual to choose not to be included. No, Jesus came to save his people. And you are a choice. But unfortunately, you're not your own choice. You're God's choice. Now, I think that's beautiful. Because then I can have a proper view of my own depravity, my own sinfulness, and luxuriate and be supine in God's choice and in his love for me. Every scripture truth is given to us for a purpose. Every single one of them. And they're all precious. He will save his people from our sins. Let me end with this. There's no question whether or not you voted for him that everybody expects Barack Obama to be a messiah. Right? We all have messianic hopes in Barack Obama. Well, maybe you don't, but I do. And what do I want to be saved from by my Messiah? Maybe I should ask it this way. All of us don't want to be saved by Barack Obama, but other people do. And those other people that do, what do they want to be saved from? Two things. They want peace financially and they want peace militarily. They want to be brought out of Iraq and they want to be brought back from the edge of the precipice of Wall Street. Financial peace, military peace, right? Nothing's ever changed. Nothing has ever changed. Because that's precisely what the disciples, let alone the rank-and-file Jews, wanted from their Messiah when Jesus came. That's the entire conflict that surrounded Jesus. They wanted financial peace and they wanted military peace. They wanted the oppressor removed. The Messiah was to whoop up on Rome and to give them peace. But Jesus came to save his people from what? From their sins. Now, what do you think your loved ones need to be saved from? Can I please put words into your mouth for a second? Do you know what the hope of the Western world is today? It's not Jesus. Do you know what it is? You should know this in Bloomington. The hope of the Western world is education. Do you know how you know this? If you listen to Orthodox, Biblical Christians, the most Biblical people among you today, if you listen... If I listen to you talk about your loved ones and your neighbors and your children in sin, do you know how you will describe them? You will describe them not as being slaves of Satan and in bondage to sin. None of you ever talk that way, ever, ever, ever. Do you know what you actually say? I hear this. What you actually say is they what? Now, I want to know what you just said. That's close, but that's maybe what you say. But it'll make my point. Somebody else, give me another one. Mistakes, yeah, but there's a specific phrase that you use. Huh? (laughs) Yeah, the most common way you guys say this is they're making bad choices. 
That's how you say it. They're making bad choices. Listen to yourself. You'll hear yourself saying that. How do you get to the point where bad choices have replaced sin? How do you get to that point? Well, it's because education is the panacea. Education is a cure-all in the Western world today. And if you make bad choices, then all that's needed is for you to be educated. And once you're educated, then you'll stop making bad choices because you'll have been enlightened. And you will no longer give yourself to self-destructive habits. You will no longer make bad choices. Do you guys see this? We have removed God from our world. People are not slaves of Satan. They're not in sin. Their hearts are not deceitful and desperately wicked. Sin is not the problem. He will save his people from only having a high school diploma so that they'll go to college and begin to make right choices. All right, they won't go to a secular college. They'll go to a Christian college. Or they'll go to seminary. They'll go to the pastor's college. They'll make right choices because it's all about education. But nobody today thinks of the wrath of God. Nobody thinks of depravity. Nobody thinks of original sin. Nobody thinks of the garden. Nobody thinks of hell. And so what I want you to do this Christmas is think with your loved ones, with your wife, your husband, your children, your neighbors, the people that you care for in your profession, the people that you grade their papers, the people that you work on the assembly line with, I want you to realize that the wrath of God is revealed against all men. And that Jesus came not to save us from bad choices, but to save us from our sin. Yesterday I was over at a house for a birthday party. And at that house I was introduced to a man who was a professor, uh, a full professor, I'm sure, although he didn't tell me that, but he was old enough and had been here long enough that I'm sure he has tenure. And when I was introduced to him, I was told that this man was, I believe, an agnostic. So picture this. You have a man in Bloomington who's made tenure, right? And he has a, a very, very responsible position, at a very large research university, professing, right? And you're a Christian, and you're probably pregnant, and you're young, and you're a woman. And here's a soul made in the image of God. And it's Christmas. What do you need to tell that soul? What do you need to tell that soul? What does that soul need? Does that soul need to know that abortion is evil? No. Does that soul need to know that people who have same-sex intimacy desires shouldn't marry one another? No. Does that soul need to know that you didn't vote for Barack Obama? or for John McCain, or that you're not a Republican? No. Does that soul need to know where you went to college? What degree you have? What your GPA was? No. What does he need to know? What he needs to know is that the guilt that he has within him, the guilt of crime and punishment, the guilt that is the central reality of every man. The guilt that even can motivate men to ice fish. That you have that guilt too, but that Jesus Christ has borne the penalty for your sin. In other words, you need to believe that that man knows that the wrath of God abides on him. And you need to place your faith in the revelation of Scripture that it is the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts man of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Do you know what that man needs to know? He needs to know of what? Sin of what? Righteousness of what? Of judgment.
And do you know that when you set about to convince that man of sin and righteousness and judgment, at that moment, do you know what is true of you? What's true of you is that you have begun to love him. (laughs) Jesus came to save his people from their sin. And if that man is a people of Jesus... When you speak to him about sin and righteousness and judgment, you know what will happen? Cannot not happen. That crusty, agnostic, tenured professor will be born again by the Spirit of God. You know who will never, ever believe you if you try to convince him of sin and righteousness and judgment? Ever! Church people, don't waste your time on it. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray.